Good morning. You know, we prayed for Eric and Virginia Spangler. Eric and Virginia are the Asia Area Directors for Asia Area Ministry in the Free Methodist World Missions. That was a mouthful and I got it. So they are traveling right now because they are doing the annual conference in Hong Kong. And so they are traveling to Hong Kong for annual conference. And then after they are in Hong Kong, they are going to Cambodia for a preaching and church planting seminar that they are putting on. And so he specifically asked that as they travel over the next month, um, that we remember them in prayers for health and um, safety and all of the above uh, where they are. Well, good morning. Welcome to church. We are one week away from Mother's Day. And we are excited about it because we are going to celebrate, we are going to honor, and I don't know how many of you guys know Candy Sanders. Um, Candy Sanders is like one of the uh, people in this story who can make beautiful things out of flowers and other things. And like, I know that she has an amazing gift planned for the moms. It is alive, but not in the spider way. Um, So uh, don't be concerned. Um, I happen to have a three-year-old staying at my house who um, has brought in, at this point in two weeks, worms, snakes, potato bugs, um, spiders, uh, bees, um, and anytime you see him with his hands like this, you just run. Like, whatever direction he is going, you go the opposite, because this is not safe. It's not like that, I promise. Um, Candy is amazing, and it's wonderful, and we're excited to celebrate with gifts and um, just a beautiful Sunday. I know that the Cookshill kids are planning a surprise for their parents. Um, that will also be a nice surprise. I promise it won't come like this. Um, <laughs> I, I think. I promise that for a few. Not necessarily all. Uh, we'll see what happens. And so, um, there's a few other things happening. One, our rescue Sunday next week. Fire trucks are coming. Firefighters are coming. We got lots of fun planned. And then, um, there's one way that we could use a little bit of help if you would like to. Um, Cooks Hill Child Care Center is hosting their first preschool graduation. Um, and it is very exciting, and there are a lot of kids heading off to kindergarten, and that graduation celebration will be so fun, but there is a sign-up on the back, uh, Welcome Center. If you like to bake or know how to bake, or you can bake something not poisonous, um, if you would put your name on that sign-up sheet, um, and you don't have to put your name on it, That way, if they don't taste good, no one will know that they were yours. Um, And bring some cookies on that day. It's on the 15th. um, And so um, that day, there's a sign-up sheet back there. If you can make some cookies to bring to that, we would take them. And I promise we will not eat them before the celebration happens. So this particular series is called the Beatitudes. We've got two weeks left in the Beatitudes, and we are going through the different statements that Jesus made on the Sermon on the Mount, and we are talking about what they mean for us. And the Bible written uh, is always written in a context that it is time period specific. And so when we look through scripture, we always try, especially here at Cooks Hill, to look at the context first and to say, who was it written to? And then we ask the question, who was it written for? 
Because we think that the Bible has been written for all of us, but it wasn't always written to all of us in our context and in our specific um, areas and ways that we are living with the culture at the time. And so this particular passage was, was uh, particularly written to the Pharisees and the people in that time and place that were uh, struggling to understand a type of kingdom that didn't come with wealth, status, power, and sort of the um, grandeur of being the most popular. And so the Pharisees had taken this idea that God's kingdom was run by the law keepers, the rule keepers, the people who memorized the entire Bible, and, and those people set the standard and set the tone for everybody else, and everybody else needed to follow what they said and what they did, and, and they would know who they were when they walked down the street. A Pharisee would walk through, and everyone would say, that's a Pharisee. We know that's a Pharisee. They knew who they were. They were popular. They were well-known. They were wealthy. They had status and they controlled the spiritual tenor and the spiritual sort of uh, setting of the day. And so far, last week's topic of compassion and forgiveness are in no way influenced by status, wealth, or power. Compassion and forgiveness are the opposite of status, wealth, and power. And, and fully depending on God or, or being poor in spirit, which we've talked about, and, and hungering and thirsting after righteousness and, and understanding that we don't do, we receive the love of Jesus, are all the opposite in some way, shape, or form of status, wealth, and power. And that same message, not necessarily written to us at the time it was written, is written for us because our world is in the same boat. Our world is wrapped up in status, wealth, and power. And our world wants us to know that those are the things that make us important. The promotions, the money, the jobs, how many people know you, how many people like you that know you, those things are important. They're important to us, and they're important to our world. And so Jesus was shaking things up then, and these same statements are shaking things up now. And if we're honest, we allow status, wealth, and power to infiltrate everything we do. We allow it to infiltrate how we think, how we function, not just individually, but as a church. We think, who will notice? Who will pay attention? What will our name be on? So this morning, we're going to read through the Beatitudes and jump in. Matthew 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Today we're focusing in on verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. 
It's really, really important that we do not read this to say, blessed are the people who love peaceful situations. That is not what this says. Because we are all in that boat. Uh, Naturally, we desire to be a part of peaceful situations. But this particular scripture goes far beyond the context of peaceful situations that we may think of when we hear this particular scripture. And so let's break it down. The word peacemaker in this scripture does not show up anywhere else in the Bible. This is the only place in scripture where the word peacemaker shows up. And the way that the language sort of tends towards is that we can't necessarily interpret peacemaker as one word. There's not really a context for this word. It's not a word anywhere else. It's not a word that we know. It's not a word that has a definition that we can easily understand. And so we are forced by nature of the language to translate it as peace and maker. And so we take this word and we turn it into two words because peacemaker is not a word that has a context in scripture as a single word anywhere else and or in any type of context. And so that also means that we can't understand it as we understand all the other peace-based words that we find in scripture, like peaceful or a pacifist or some type of word that defines peace. Because those words have definitions, they show up, they're used throughout all over scripture, and this particular context is two words, peace and maker. And so we're going to break it down that way today. And there's a lot of scriptures that talk about peace. There's a lot. All throughout scripture, peace itself as a word comes up. But it most often shows up in the context of righteousness. And remember last week we talked about the context called divine passive. When something is written in the original language in a divine passive context, it means that it is a God component, not a personal component. And so um, what we are doing here is breaking down the word peacemaker as it pertains to children of God. So Isaiah 32, 7 says, the fruit of righteousness will be peace. Its effect will be quietness and confidence forever. James 3, 17 says, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace shows up in the context of righteousness. And in our way of interpreting in the Bible into the English language, there are multiple forms of the word peace, peaceful, uh, peace-ish is probably in there somewhere, peace, uh, all of these different forms of peace. And this particular peacemaker context is only in the Beatitudes. And our culture would tell us that peace is sort of a passive state, that peace is the result of being quiet or being silenced or choosing not to create a conflict or to speak up. That messaging runs really deep in our world. But it's not necessarily the peace that's being addressed in Scripture. Most of what's discussed as peace in Scripture doesn't really align with the concept of of quiet stillness and calmness. Quiet stillness and calmness are talked about, but not often in the context of peace. Most of what's discussed as peace pertains to righteousness. And so true peace 
based on the scriptures that we read, is tied to righteousness. And, and righteousness, which we just talked about last week, is about a relationship with God and the pursuit of a relationship with God. And that's been the plan all along. From the very beginning, God has been a peace-loving, peace-creating, and peace-making God. Not to be confused with a passive God. Because he has been nothing close to always calm, quiet. If you read the Old Testament, you would very quickly jump on board with the fact that we could not translate God's plan for peace to be the same thing as God being passive. And, and that destruction of that original relationship with Adam and Eve that lended to a separation due to sin, that God created a plan for eternal peace to reign, happens here throughout Scripture. His plan to send his son to die on the cross, creating a lasting peace, an eternal plan for peace between God and humans and, and hopefully wherever possible between humans and humans. But as we follow the story of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday where they're expecting this wealthy, amazing, incredible king who's going to reign over the land and, and then there's this tragic death that follows. There was no sense in God's plan to create peace of calmness and passivity. That week leading up to Jesus' death was intense. It was high conflict. It was stressful. And it was incredibly filled with emotion. It was not passive, nor was it very calm. Because if peace is about a relationship with God, and God sent Jesus to make that possible, then true peace is also very costly. This beatitude reads, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are making peace, not those who have achieved it, not those who feel like there's peace, not those who long for peace, but those who are actively making peace. So there's a few things we can learn from the story of God throughout every moment in history, starting with Adam and Eve to the death and resurrection of Jesus about peace. And one, peace equals righteousness. And righteousness is the relentless pursuit of God. We search for ways to feel peace all the time. Our culture our communities, our world is full of strategies for meditation, for yoga, for calming senses and things that we can do, and all potentially very helpful in creating calming situations and calming settings and spaces. Uh, but what the world considers peace is not necessarily what's being talked about here. It's actually just a sense, typically, of calm. And that is helpful. There are many days for all of us where a sense of calm is a good idea. And a sense of calm is a good thing. And finding that sense of calm and pursuing that sense of calm might be an incredibly valuable thing to do. And some of you are sitting here going, I would like that right now. And so there's nothing wrong with pursuing a sense of calm or feeling calm. Um, and that is an understanding of a context of peace, but it's not the understanding of this context of peace. So don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying that we need to live in chaos 
forever, and that's how Jesus designed our world. It is okay to pursue a sense of calm. That is not what this particular beatitude is about. And because of the world's influence on our view of peace, we tend to interchange peace and calm. But peace is of God, calm is of situation and setting. And so in challenging situations, oftentimes we'll say things like, just trust God, or it'll all be okay if we just trust God, or, or if we know that God's got it, then it will be okay. And those statements are kind of what we assume triggers the sense of calm. Like we understand that God's in control, so now we're calm. And that's sort of what we do as Christians. We offer those words and we hope that they trigger a sense of calm and, and that that might help the situation. And, and, and that's not actually how peace comes about. If peace is about righteousness and relationship with God, then we don't necessarily get more peace by trying harder or by triggering peace in some sort of way um, or by uh, trying to achieve more peace. Although those are really great options, peace is a result of our faith in Jesus and his sacrifice paid on the cross. So when we are experiencing in life a season that feels like it lacks peace, then our go-to route is not necessarily to try to come up with more peace or create more calmness in our life, but to go back to our relationship with God, which is the root of peace. The second thing that we learn about peace throughout Scripture is that true peace will come at a cost. Colossians 1.20 says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace, through his blood shed on the cross. There's a cost involved in this scripture. There was nothing in the context of Jesus' death and resurrection that at some point did not cost everything. And if the route to peace is through Jesus' death on the cross, then we have to assume that peace is not necessarily cheap or free. Peace came at a cost. And I think the same could be said to be true of our own relationships. Because the pursuit of a relationship with God is not just personal, it's communal. And one of the things that the American church has done is we've really siloed the relationship with God. We've really said it's you and Jesus. It's you and Jesus. It's your personal relationship with Jesus. And, and it, it tends to fall on the individual. And while there is truth that there needs to be individual commitment to the relationship with Jesus, the relationship with Jesus goes far beyond the individual to the entire community. Our faith is designed to impact those around us. So the pursuit of a relationship with God is also going to impact the community that we are pursuing God with. And Cooks Hill Community Church is pursuing God individually and collectively which means how we understand and achieve peace matters because that particular component affects our entire community. And if we mistake true peace for passivity, we might seem really nice on the outside and people might be able to come in and say, these are nice people and this was a nice day and these are nice interactions 
but will they meet Jesus and experience transformation? And in community, we often exchange passivity for peace. And when we swap passivity for true peace, what we get in our communities isn't necessarily good. Passivity is allowing behaviors that shouldn't be allowed. It's ignoring things that shouldn't be ignored. Which means that while we may not create conflict immediately out of something, it isn't true peace or a true reflection of God's character. Often in passive environments where we've exchanged passivity for peace, people get away with behavior that's inappropriate. Abuse gets swept under the rug. And excuses are made in the effort to just keep the peace or not upset someone or not offend someone. And when Jesus came into town that week, that would cost him his life where he was going to die on the cross and then rise again. The definition of the kingdom changed. And it was anything but passive and non-offensive. Jesus had to set the expectations for the kingdom right. And in doing so, it would cost him his life. And it was in no way keeping the peace or not offensive. Jesus' statements ruffled a lot of feathers. And his definition of the kingdom and his willingness to call out pharisaical behavior and say this is not what Jesus would want. This is not how the kingdom really functions was anything but calm and not upsetting. It was so upsetting that they killed him. So the third thing we learn about peace in this particular context is that peace is not about avoiding conflict. It's about engaging in the conflict that allows for the goodness of God to flourish. And there's an important note there because this does not mean that you go out from here and we just like create every conflict that we can possibly find anywhere we go. That is not what we are saying. What we are saying is that making peace is not about avoiding conflict when what we sacrifice is the goodness of God. It's about engaging in the conflict that allows for the goodness of God to flourish. 1 Peter 3.10 says, For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. Seeking peace for our community means that we're willing to call out evil. We're willing to call out behaviors that don't bring about the goodness of God. Seeking peace is active. It's not passive. It's a pursuit. It's a choice. It's a decision. It's intentional. Whether that means that we are willing to feed, clothe, and house the unfed, unhoused, and unclothed people in our community, or whether that means that we are willing to call out and be called out of our own behaviors. Because that is a two-way street. We don't get to just go out and call out the behaviors we don't like. We have to be willing to work on the behaviors that are called out in us. So that eventually, 
our community can be the best reflection of the goodness of God possible. Galatians 6, 9 through 10, and we'll wrap up here in a minute, says, So let us not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially those in the family of faith. To look for opportunities, to take opportunities, to actively pursue opportunities to do good and to show mercy and to engage in the conflict that allows us to see the goodness of God for our community. To be a peacemaker is to actively pursue the goodness of God personally and communally. Not just in our own worlds, pursue the goodness of God and the conflict that may need to happen in order for that to be the case, but in our community as well.